Getting an understanding of Romans 6, 7, and 8 is foundational to your living that victorious Christian life. Failing to grasp and understand these three chapters will only result in living as a Christian in frustration and defeat, and that's the person that's described in Romans chapter 7. But God desires you and me to leave chapter 7 and live in Romans 8, where we will discover your overcoming power, the indwelling Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 6, Paul teaches you the principles for living a victorious, godly life. In chapter 7, he describes and explains the problem in you trying to live that life. And in Romans 8, he introduces you to the power. He introduces you to the power for living this amazing life God designed for you to live. It is in Romans 8 that you're introduced to God the Holy Spirit. By the way, he appears in the earlier chapters, but he really appears in chapter 8, 17 times you're introduced to him. Your overcoming power, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Last week we looked at the first 17 verses of this chapter. In those 70 verses we saw five different ways that the indwelling Holy Spirit was and is our overcoming power. And if you got a bulletin, you have an outline there, and we've reviewed some of that, so it's there for you. But first of all, he delivered, he delivered you from the condemnation of your flesh. Verses 1 and 2. As you should know, this eighth chapter begins with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. It's an astounding chapter. When you got saved and God placed you in Christ Jesus, who bore all your sin and all your punishment, God completely freed you forever from all guilt and all judgment, since his son bore it all for you. If you're saved, you're in Christ, and right now and forevermore, all condemnation has been forever removed. And that happened the moment you got saved. That's why this is such an astounding chapter. But secondly, he delivered you from all condemnation of your flesh, but secondly, he delivers you from the power of your indwelling flesh. Verses 3 through 8. It's absolutely wonderful and glorious to know that God has delivered me from all condemnation because of my past and present sinful flesh, and to know with absolute assurance, I mean this, to know with absolute assurance that I'm going to go to heaven and live with God forever. That's great. That's wonderful. But what about right now? while I'm still having to deal with this sinful flesh that still dwells in my body. You might remember that quote I used last week from James Stifler. He says, The flesh is one's constant and most intimate associate. The man in Christ is not in the flesh, but it is in him. And the problem of salvation is not how to transmute the flesh into something good, but how to live with this devilish thing every day without being overcome by it. And then he states, concludes, the presence of the Spirit solves the problem because he delivers you moment by moment, day by day, from the power of your flesh. And then we saw, thirdly, he will deliver your body from the power of death. That's future. He will deliver your body from the power of death, verses 10, 11. Your unredeemed body is very important to God. After all, it is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're saved, he dwells in this body. And I think what verse 10 says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead, it's interesting, though the body is dead, Christ living you, it's dead because of sin, yet the spirit, that's your spirit, not the Holy Spirit, is alive because of righteousness. 
So the body is very important to God. And verse 11 declares that the Holy Spirit will give life to your mortal body just as he raised Jesus up from the dead. Now, dear ones, I call that power. Amen? That's power. And he dwells in you, and he says, I have delivered you from the condemnation of your flesh. I am delivering you from the uh, the power of your flesh right now, and I will deliver you, even your body, from death. The power of death. Amazing power. So Paul lays out how the power of the indwelling spirit, Holy Spirit, has delivered you from this condemnation of your flesh, how he presently, day by day, delivers you from the power of your flesh, and how he will deliver even your body from the power of death. And that brought us to four, which is really, really important. Number four in that outline that you have there in your bulletin, your necessary response to the indwelling Holy Spirit, verses 12 and 13. There's a necessary response that God expects from those who are redeemed that have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Acknowledge God has freed you to choose to live for Him. I said last week that some, some, for many where the battle is. They will not acknowledge what God says is true. He has set your will free that you can now choose moment by moment to live for Him. That's something, by the way, the unsaved person cannot do since he does not have the indwelling Holy Spirit and is completely dominated by his flesh. That means his old sin nature, by the way. And his flesh, is, it says, is hostile toward God. His flesh that controls him is hostile toward God. It does not even subject itself to the law of God. In fact, Romans 8, verses 7, it says it can't even, it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But God has set you free, and you can choose to live for him. And then he goes on there in verse 13. He says, you are, listen to this, get it here, underline your Bible, you are by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. Romans 7, we find ourselves trying to do that, trying to live the victorious Christian life and frustrated and struggling. But by the Spirit. We're to put to death death the deeds of the body. The Holy Spirit's presence is instant death to the evil deeds of the body when you acknowledge his presence and yield to him. But notice God did not say destroy the flesh or destroy the body, but destroy the deeds. Put to death the deeds of the body. It's aspirations, it's impulses, desires, works, and all that list in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. He said, that's what we're to put to death. And that brought us to our last point from last week. He leads you, confirming you are God's son and Christ's joint heir. Fellow heir, if you please. The Holy Spirit leads you. That's what he's doing right now. He led you to church. He led you to open your Bibles this morning if you did. He leads you day by day. He's in you trying to seek to lead you. It's God who's at work in you, causing you to will and work for his good pleasure. He leads you, but he confirms you are God's son and Christ's joint heir, verses 14 through 17. This leading, by the way, is the outward sign of an inward change. One of the concerns today in church, church gets loaded with people that there's no inward change. They've not experienced all things become new. But his leading becomes an outward sign of your inward change, so much so that the indwelling Holy Spirit himself testifies with your spirit that you are indeed a child of God, having been born into God's family and having become partaker of the divine nature, as Peter mentions in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. 
But God declares to you that you are not only his child, his born one, you are his son. And your sonship tells you something amazing about your relationship to God. He is your father. You say, Abba, Father. And he has made you an heir along with his beloved son. That's what that adoption refers to. He's made you an heir with his beloved son. Your inheritance, lavishly bestowed upon you by your heavenly father, assures you that you will not only get into the kingdom when his son comes and sets up that kingdom and reigns over the entire earth, you will reign with him. That's a vital heartbeat of this chapter. God is preparing you who are redeemed to reign with his son when he sets up his kingdom, when he returns and sets up his kingdom. It really is the writer of Hebrews, as he states, a so great a salvation. It really is. Amazing. As we come now to the second half of Romans 8, examine verses 18 through 39. You're going to be introduced to certain words like, you'll see a transition here. Suffer, suffering, futility, slavery to corruption, groans, groan, groaning, weakness, tribulation, distress, persecution, and such like words. But pay particular attention to these contrasting words. Glory waits eagerly. Hope set free. The freedom of the glory waiting eagerly. Glorified, overwhelmingly conquer in the love of God. Don't miss that contrast. In verse 17, Paul writes, And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Let's deal with the last part of that verse first. We know that all those who are truly born again are guaranteed to be glorified. So the issue is not, will every believer get to heaven and be glorified? The Bible clearly settles that issue, that every believer will enter into the glory with Christ. Verse 30 should settle that. Look at verse 30 if you would, even though we're cutting in the middle of one of Paul's long sentences here. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, what? what? Louder. He also glorified. There it is. And then also Romans 5, 2, Paul says, of those who are genuinely saved, we exalt in hope. That's a guarantee and assurance of the glory of God. And many other passages can be cited to show that every genuine believer in Christ will be glorified with him. We will all, who are redeemed, we will all share in that glory. And it's also true that every genuine believer who will suffer to some degree for being a Christian, and especially if you seek to live a godly life. Jesus said, the world's going to hate you because I called you out of the world. It hated me. It's going to hate you as well. And of course, we know Paul's uh, statement about that same issue. He said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. By the way, is that not becoming more and more true here in America, in the U.S.? All you have to do is take a, listen, take a righteous stand. Not a Republican stand, not a Democrat, not an independent, but a, not a, not a Bernie Sanders, but a righteous stand. Know your Bible and say, I'm standing on the solid rock of what God has to say. It's his Ten Commandments, by the way. You take that stand, and I guarantee you, you will suffer persecution to some degree or other. Depending on what country you're in, by the way, it really could get worse, as you know. But what about our reigning with Christ? Is it just that if you suffer, then you're going to reign with him? If you don't, you won't? 
I appreciate W.R. Newell's insight here. He writes, Now, as to places in the kingdom, what reward we shall have, what responsibilities of kingdom government in that thousand years we shall each be able to bear or be entitled to, our suffering with Christ Jesus seems to determine. His point being, evidently, the more God calls upon you to suffer, the greater your position and the greater your reward in the kingdom. But we all will reign with him if we're redeemed. If you're redeemed, you're going to reign with him. And that's incredible. That's amazing that God is preparing you right now to reign with his son in all the things that you find yourself going through. And, of course, the last half of this chapter, it really expounds on that, does it not? Here in the second half of Romans 8, Paul now deals with a very big issue. You need to see it. It's like a dividing point here. He deals with a very big issue. Yes, yes, you are going, you are a joint heir with Christ, and as such, you're going to suffer with him during the rest of your earthly sojourn. That's why we sing those hymns we did. That's why the ladies sing the duet they sing day by day. But... All three persons of the Trinity are mentioned here in chapter 8. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have fully committed themselves to bring you safely through any and all trials and troubles and tribulations that God may allow to come into your life and get you safely home glorified. Amen? Amazing chapter. Amazing chapter. Notice the words glorified and glory in verses 17 and 18. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so we also may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And then that section is concluded with verse 30 where he says what? Them he glorified. God will get you safely home no matter what you might be going through now or will go through in your life. And we don't know what all that is, but God does. Just like he allowed the things to come into Job's life. And he'll get you safely home glorified. That's what this text, the second half of this, is all about. So we come now to the last half of this great chapter, Romans 8. The Holy Spirit not only leads you, confirming you are God's Son and Christ joint heir, but number six in our outline, he assures you that though you will suffer, far greater glory await you. You know, I need this. I, um, I'm i not thinking so much about the United States of America, but I think about countries where Islam is very strong and militants are there and where they have tracked down Christians and tortured them. And there you are, my brothers and sisters, and we can't even imagine what they have been and are going through. And I need that. That's why Romans 8 is here. And it may be you tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. He assures you that though you will suffer... Far greater glory awaits you, verses 18 through 27. In verse 18, Paul shows the disproportion, if you please, of our suffering to the glory of God that is going to be given to us. He says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time, and by the way, he certainly knew this, didn't he? He went through it daily. Are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It reminds us of his words over in 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18. Therefore, he says, we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. We see a world that's wicked and evil and hates God and hates God's people and tracks them down and tortures them. We don't lose heart, though. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. 
for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's amazing. That's the outworking of Romans chapter 8. Now, in our text, in verses 19 through 27, Paul presents three groans. (laughs) He presents three groans that lead to our future glory. In your outline, creation's groan confirms this. Creation's groan confirms this. Let me read 19 through 22. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Creation's groan confirms this. Something is clearly wrong with creation. Not evolution. That's foolish. Something is clearly wrong with creation. It's not able to do what it was designed by God to do. Spring comes, and I love spring, and things sprout forth, and there's a new and the green there, and then followed by fall and winter, and it all dies. For those who know God in the Bible, his written revelation, they understand why creation groans. Its groan is tied directly to man's fall in the Garden of Eden that caused God to place a curse on his creation that he originally declared to be good. Man's fall is tied to that. Creation groans. Things deteriorate, and disease and death are everywhere. Storms and earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and other catastrophic disasters are part of this curse. The winds howl and moan in a minor key as God's creation groans. Here Paul personifies creation, making it like a person, saying it anxiously longs and waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. See how that promotes God's, what he says here, you'll suffer but far greater glory awaits you. For then it will be set free from its slavery to corruption when we, the children of God, receive our glory. So creation's present groan confirms that even though you will suffer, far greater glory awaits you. But secondly, your groan confirms this. You don't groan, do you? (laughs) Wives are saying, oh, yes, he does. (laughs) Your groan confirms this. Verses 23 through 25 And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he has already seized? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Your groan confirms this. W.R. Newell says, This scene is deeply touching. One who redeemed belongs in heaven, yet kept in a body in which he groans with groaning creation. End of quote. 
In verse 23, Paul states that because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for that adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, the Israelites understood the first fruits. That meant the crop was just coming on, and they would cut down sheaves and bring it before the Lord because they knew that they were saying, we trust you, we're recognizing your hand in this, and we believe that the full crop will come. And it did. And he's saying, you've got the first fruits. You've got God, the Holy Spirit, who has sealed you. And as you've seen through Romans, the work that he's doing in your life. But it's a guarantee that a greater glory will yet be yours. Wonderful. Verses 24 and 25, Paul speaks of hope. We have that ultimately, the hope that we have ultimately, that we will be glorified with Christ. W.H. Griffith Thomas explains that hope. He says, although he has given us deliverance by his spirit from the law of sin and death, he has left us in the tribulation of this world and with our bodies subject, subject to the law of death, in verse 10. This salvation is something present and complete in regard to deliverance from the guilt and condemnation of sin, but it is still future in regard to perfect deliverance from the power and presence of sin. And I say, yes, that's right. And Romans 5, 2 and following says, it describes our hope while in this decaying body and in a world where tribulation is our portion. It says, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. <laughs> we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Isn't that good? Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us. There's that first fruits. And therefore, hope does not disappoint. Griffith Thomas again blesses us with these words, faith looks backward and upward, but hope looks onward. Faith accepts, but hope expects. Faith is concerned with him who promises, but hope is occupied with the good things promised. Faith appropriates, but hope anticipates. It is the power of this hope, he writes, which the New Testament calls that blessed hope that we are to live and labor. Hope is always centered on the coming of the Lord and included in that the resurrection from the dead with complete deliverance from sin, likeness to Christ, and full revelation of our sonship to God in him. Your present groan confirms your future greater glory. But thirdly, in our text, the Holy Spirit groans, confirming this. The Holy Spirit groans, confirming this. I earlier said, Romans 8 teaches you that you are a joint heir who is going to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom here upon the earth. But during your present earthly journey as a Christian, you're going to suffer, you're going to be persecuted. But... All three persons of the Godhead have fully committed themselves to bring you safely through any and all suffering and persecution and trials and problems that come into your life and get you safely home glorified. That's Romans 8. Look at verses 26 and 27, how the Holy Spirit groans in your behalf and confirms that great truth. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is not speaking in tongues. 
This is the Holy Spirit praying for you. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When verses 35 and 36 are playing out in your life with tribulations, distresses, persecutions, that being your lot, and even torture and possibly imminent death, all you can do is groan. You really don't know how to pray. Oh, I know how you pray like I do. Lord, where are you? And get me out of this now. Yeah, I understand. We groan. But we really don't know how to pray except that. But God has not deserted you or me. The Holy Spirit is there praying with groanings too deep for words. And God, your Heavenly Father, responds in your behalf to the Holy Spirit's groaning prayer for you. Now, He knows how to pray for you. I don't. He knows how to pray for me. I don't. But And by the way, do I, I don't understand this. No, I just know what God says, and I believe, and I'm accepting that. That the Holy Spirit, when you're going through what you, and you're trying your best to pray yourself out of it, and you're trying to figure out what God's doing and try to understand why he's allowed this to come into your life, and it doesn't make sense at all like Job, he's telling you the Holy Spirit is in you, groaning, if you please, and God receives that prayer and knows exactly how to respond to it. So even... The Holy Spirit's groan confirms that God says you have a far greater glory that yet is to be yours. That brings us to number seven in your outline. So as you read verses 19 through 27, just think of those three groans that lead you to glory. But number seven, he assures you that God's providence and purpose will bring you to glory. I mean, you couldn't have it more solid than what he says in verses 28 and following. 28 through 30, he assures you that God's providence, it's all these events and circumstances and so forth that touch your life, and his purpose will bring you to glory. This, by the way, is like the apostle's highest point confirming that your glory is the inevitable outcome of your suffering. The highest point is right here. God says you are going to be glorified. How so? All things work together for your good. I don't know how, what kind of gymnastics you do with that verse, verse 28, let me read it. And we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Interesting, while in verse 26, we do not know how to pray, here in verse 28, we do know that God causes all things to work together for good to us who love his calling. The great Bible teacher of years past, R.A. Torrey, called Romans 8.28 a soft pillow for a tired heart. Boy, isn't that good? Romans 8.28, R.A. Torrey, Torrey said that's a soft pillow for a tired heart. God's five golden chain links that confirm the fulfillment of his purpose. God's five golden chain links that confirm the fulfillment of his purpose. Verses 29 and 30. God in these two verses takes you, takes you by the hand, if you please, personally back into eternity past. And then he brings you up to the very present today. And then he takes you into eternity future, declaring to you every step of the way, his purpose for you, that no one and absolutely no circumstance that touches your life can thwart. Boy, can you get a hold of that? Takes you all the way into eternity past. Says, here, we're right now... Right now, you're in church, this very moment, I'm in you, the Holy Spirit is, and you're looking at Romans uh, chapter 8, and then he takes you into the future 
It says nothing, absolutely nothing that touches your life will thwart my plan. I get all of my redeemed safely home and glorified as well. He caused you to be born into his family and partake of his divine nature. He placed you forward as his son and made you an heir with his beloved son. And he has fully committed himself to bring you to glory. He foreknew you. We're not going to get into these words. He foreknew you. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. He called you and you responded to that call and got saved. He justified you, declaring you righteous in his son. And fifth, he glorified you. One student of scripture writes, the tense of the last word is amazing. It is the most daring anticipation of faith that even the New Testament contains. Notice how God puts your future glorification in the past tense. That's how sure it is to happen. Amazing. He glorified you. Verse 30. Why did he put it in the past tense? Your future glorification. Why did he put it in the past tense? Well, he assures you that even though suffering and trials and persecution are your present lot here upon the earth during this earthly sojourn, God's providence, his purpose preparing you to reign with his son, by the way. That's his purpose. Conforming you to the image of his son so you'll be ready to reign with him will bring you to glory. And that takes us to number eight in our outline. He gives you three absolute reasons you overwhelmingly conquer. Three absolute reasons you overwhelmingly conquer. First, your relation to God. Your relation to God. Let me read verses 31 through 33. What then shall we say for these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I mean, if he gave his absolute very best, the dearest thing to his heart, how would he not also give us everything else here? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. He gives you three absolute reasons you overwhelmingly conquer Your relationship to God. Let's let a brother by the name of Marcus Rainford Sr. explain how our relationship to God causes us to overwhelmingly conquer. Here's his insight from verses 31 to 33. He says, There is no ground for condemnation since Christ has suffered the penalty. There is no law to condemn us since we are not under law but under grace. There is no tribunal for judgment since ours is now the throne of grace, not of judgment. And above all, there is no judge to sentence us since God himself, the only judge, is our justifier. Blessed be God for Paul's words that God directed him to pen. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And by the way, I realize that we all still sin. That flesh is still in each one of us. We saw that earlier. But by the Spirit, we can put to death the deeds of the body and triumph. But secondly, second absolute reason you overwhelmingly conquer, your relation to Christ. Verse 34, your relation to Christ. Who is the one who condemns? Well, we know Satan does. Sometimes we ourselves condemn ourselves, don't we? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So here we have again our relationship to Christ is an absolute reason we overwhelmingly conquer. Do you know why Satan, as well as no one else, can ever condemn you who is are a child of God? This verse, verse 34, tells you why. Profound theology. Really clear theology. You have a fourfold protection being in Christ Jesus and he in you. Fourfold protection. First, you have the protection of his death 
as a propitiation or payment that completely satisfied God. Second, you have the protection of his resurrection as a proof of your justification or righteous standing before holy God. Third, you have the protection of his ascension since he is at the right hand of God as your advocate, your defense attorney. And fourth, you have the protection of his intercession, which is in the power of an endless life, and it saves you to the uttermost, according to Hebrews seven twenty four and 25. Saved forevermore. So he gives you three absolute reasons for overwhelmingly conquering your relation to God, your relation to Christ, and number three or C there, your relation to circumstances. I've already seen the Holy Spirit, by the way, but your relation to circumstances. Let me read 35 through 39. Who? Notice he didn't say what, because it's always Satan, isn't it? He'll use circumstances, but who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, it comes, or distress, or persecution? What about famine, being naked, meaning running for your life, or peril? What about the sword? They slaughter you. Because you're a Christian. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. You know, what an amazing verse. And that's what's happening. And by the way, it will be upped more and more as we draw closer to that day of Satan's hour. For your sake we're being put to death, God, all day long. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. (laughs) Amazing what he says next. But in all these Things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am persuaded or convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll tell you what, he just exhausted it all. Tried to get it all there, didn't he? God's love for, listen to this, think it through with me. God's love for his son did not cease when he was hanging there on the cross bearing your and my sin. Did you catch that? God's love for his son did not cease when he was there bearing your and my sin and judgment and God's pouring his wrath out upon his son. And his love does not cease when he allows Satan to buffet you with all kinds of trials and troubles. When troubles hang over your head like heavy clouds, Shutting out the light of God's countenance, doubts and despair commandeer your heart and your mind. But God, the Holy Spirit, is praying for you, and he has put into your hands his precious, powerful, written word. Now, put it to work in your heart and mind and claim these promises from God, your Heavenly Father, and your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Christ with God who loved us. By the way, did you catch the tense of that verb in verse 37? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who, what? Past tense. Loved us. Why is that? Go back up to verse 32. Here's why. God is focusing on what he did and how he loved you at the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's looking back at what his love that he poured out for you and me at the cross. That's why it's in the past tense. What are all these things that he mentions there in verse 37? What are they that God declares we overwhelmingly conquer? 
Again, W.H. Griffith Thomas helps expand the meaning of Paul's list. He writes, Every conceivable enemy is contemplated in this wonderful enumeration. The most extreme changes of condition, death, and life. The most potent orders of being in the universe, angels and principalities. The possibilities of time present and future, things present and things to come. Everything that is involved in space, height and depth. And last of all, anything and everything to be found in creation, any created thing. Absolutely no one and nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I know Hans loves him, so I'll quote him today as well. Walking with a friend noticed a weather vane on top of a roof with the words on it, God is love. He remarked to his friend that he did not think it appropriate word, those words would be appropriate on such a changeable thing as a weather vane. His friend responded back, Charles, you, misunder- you misinterpreted it. You misinterpreted it. It really means God is love no matter whichever way the wind blows. That's right. No matter what you may yet have to go through. No matter what you presently are going through right now. By the way, sometimes we bring it on ourselves. That doesn't matter in the sense that God's love is still just showering you and overshadowing your life. And that love will get you, no matter what you may have to go through or what you're going through, it will get you safely home glorified. Your overcoming power, the indwelling Holy Spirit. He assures you that though you will suffer, a far greater glory awaits you. He assures you that God's providence and purpose will bring you to glory. And he assures you of that by giving you three absolute reasons you overwhelmingly conquer. And that is your relation to God, your relation to Jesus Christ, and your relation to circumstances. I close with this overview, this overview of Romans 8 with these verses out of Revelation. I know you'll get the connection. Just this overview of, Revela- of Romans 8 with some verses out of Revelation. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom. Some texts say kings. Priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. And then the Apostle John adds Revelation 5.10, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Amen? Amen. Father, I would ask that your Spirit would just place these words of Romans chapter 8 deep into our heart and mind and help us to realize there's the power. Our overcoming power is the, or overwhelming power, is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. May we go on in victory. And though you've set forth, yes, you're going to be suffering when you identify with me, when you choose to live a righteous life, when you choose to choose the right over the wrong, when you choose to stand up for God's written word, the standards of Scripture, instead of the standards of the world, you will be persecuted. You'll be mocked. You'll suffer. in who knows how many different ways And in some ways, Father, it's way, way worse than here. But how I pray that this message would burn in our hearts. We overcome by your Holy Spirit and all three persons of the Trinity here in Romans 8 will see to it that we get safely home and we will be glorified and we will reign. We will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're preparing us for that right now. Help us not to throw it away. 
but to live in light of your imminent return. In your name we pray. Amen.